0: Welcome to the John Mark Comer Teachings Podcast by Practicing the Way. This teaching was first given at Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon, as a part of the Naming Your Stage in Apprenticeship series. Have you ever felt stuck in your journey of apprenticeship to Jesus? Like you hit a plateau? and you feel like, man, I'm just not moving forward year over month over whatever. Or you feel like you're up against a wall, like something is just there to block your way forward. Or you feel like something is holding you back from your past, a wound, or in your present, a habit of sin, or a nagging doubt that just won't go away. But for whatever reason, you just feel or you felt stuck. If so, you are not alone. To start off, John chapter 21, a post-Easter story, verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And in context, if you're familiar with the story, the these are fish, which are more than fish, are symbolic for a career ambition, so to speak, apart from apprenticeship to Jesus. Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. That was his metaphor for you and for I, the church, his lambs, his flock. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time, and remember, you're stepping into a story. How many times did Peter deny Jesus? Jesus. 3 right so this is this is a healing process between Jesus and Peter the third time he said to them Simon son of John do you love me peter was hurt notice that in the healing he was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time do you love me and he said lord you know all things you know that i love you jesus said feed my sheep very truly i tell you and pay attention to this when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. This is a story about Peter and his journey of apprenticeship to Jesus from youth When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. You were in control of your life. To old age, when you are older, somebody else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. That is a nod to what church history tells us was Peter's death by upside down crucifixion at the hands of Rome. And at one level, this is just a story about Peter's journey with Jesus. But on another level, it's here because it's paradigmatic. It's about your story and my story. It's about our journey with Jesus. On that note, notice two things from the story about our journey of apprenticeship to Jesus. First, notice, you will be led. Put another way, somebody else is in charge of your life and your spiritual formation. The imagery in Jesus' mind is of a sheep and of a shepherd, and it's crystal clear. Peter's in the mix, but Jesus is the shepherd, and you and I are the flock. Now, at one level, that sounds sentimental and nice and cute and Christianese. At the other level, how many of us really want to identify with the sheep? I far prefer to identify with the shepherd, right? I'm in charge. I have this down. Thank you very much. We don't like to hear this if we're honest. The great lie of American self-help is that you are in charge of your life like any good lie, it's full of truth. You have all sorts of agency, far more than many of us realize. And a lot of people in particular, those that start off with less privilege, whether that's women or people of color or whatever it may be, need to hear this message, take control of your life. The problem is that eventually we all realize we're not in control. Because we live in a life-hack, technique-obsessed culture—one cultural commentator I read recently said that technique is to modern secular culture what sorcery was to ancient pre-Christian culture—it is an attempt to master the forces of nature that are out of our control for our own safety and security. People think, you know, if I can just master the right technique for parenting, the right formula, the right discipline thing, the right book, the right acronym, then my children will turn out awesome, all love Jesus, and go to Stanford and pay for my retirement. Or if I can just listen to the right podcast and watch the right TED Talk and get into the right book, go through the right training, my business, my entrepreneurial attempt will just turn out amazing and I will retire by 40. Or if I can just figure out the right formula for, the, for spiritual formation, read everything by Dallas Willard, practice all the disciplines, get the right therapist, whatever it is, then 35, I'm basically the second coming of Jesus. Done, great. But at some point, the, and that's not all bad, but at some point the formula we come up with doesn't pencil out. And we realize the hard truth that, oh man, we're actually not in control. And that's terrifying until we realize that, quote, the Lord is my shepherd. That we're under someone else's care. That doesn't mean that, you know, he's in control of everything that happens to us. All sorts of things happen to us that are the antithesis of God's will. Definitely not in control of that. That's sin. That's chaos. That's somebody else's wound. That's our own mistake. That's a malevolent spiritual power at work. But still, it does mean that we are under Jesus' care. He is the shepherd. We are the sheep. His job is to lead. Our job is to follow. You will be led. Secondly, notice, you will be led where you would rather not go. Just here to encourage you tonight. No, this is good news, actually. Henry Nowen in his little book, Reflections on Christian Leadership, which is one of his best books, takes about 20 minutes to read. It's beautiful. Writes from this story, John 21, that maturity for Jesus is being willing to be led where you would rather not go. Love that definition of maturity. How mature am I? How willing are you to be led where you would rather not go? The upside to the fact that you will be led That Jesus is in charge of our life is that we get to offload the crushing burden of control, which is a fool's errand and an illusion, and release instead our soul into the hands of Jesus to form as he sees fit. The downside to the fact that we will be led is one, we often have no clue where we are going. If your journey with Jesus is anything like mine, you often feel confused. And two, Jesus, even when we do know where we are going, Jesus will often take us where we do not want to go and, just to make it fun, not take us where we do want to go. And that, again, is good news. But how far we progress on the journey of apprenticeship to Jesus is often about our willingness or our lack thereof to follow Jesus into pain, Confusion, self-denial, and sacrificial love. In faith, that death is followed by life. That Good Friday is followed by Easter. That death to self is followed by what Jesus called life to the full. On that note, next up on the docket is a stage theory paradigm called the critical journey. If you missed week one or two of our practice, go back, listen to the podcast, all sorts of framework. I don't have time to repeat. Stage theory, in one sentence, is just an attempt to map the spiritual journey in order to better name the invitations of Jesus Right here, right now. We started off with the three ways paradigm a few weeks ago of awakening, purgation, illumination, and union, which is the most ancient of all the paradigms. The critical journey is the most recent. It was developed in the 80s and 90s by Janet Hagberg and Robert Gulick from Fuller Seminary, based on all sorts of research and data. The impetus for the update was that you know in the modern world, pretty much all of us in the room have far more agency than most people down through human history, and so the of this paradigm is to take into account a little bit more of work, whether that be in your career or in your family, in particular, if you're a parent or that's on your radar, or in church or in ministry or in leadership of the kingdom of God. If you were a peasant in, you know, 13th century feudal Europe, career wasn't really a part of your spiritual journey with Jesus, right? Survival was, and how do you feed the children you have and make more to help you feed more? But all of that, but career and work, that was really not a part of your journey, but for the vast majority of people in the room and in our city, now it is. So this is an attempt to kind of update it a little bit with that in mind. The authors of the paradigm break the spiritual journey down into six stages, the recognition of God, the life of discipleship, the productive life, the journey inward, the wall, which is not a stage, but an obstacle that is between us and the next stage, The journey outward and the life of love. A short word on each, and then we'll end with a few thoughts for what it all means. Stage one, the recognition of God. The spiritual journey begins when we recognize that someone is behind it all, that there is more to life. That we're more, and there's more to the human human body, that we're more than just an animal, that we have a soul. There's more to reality than evolutionary theory, blind chance, biological drives, pre programming of genetics, career success, grocery shopping, and binge watching Netflix. The material is not all there is, there is the spiritual. This recognition may come at age three, praying with our mom or dad before bed, or at age 33, hiking through the mountains and asking yourself, what is the meaning of life? Or at 53, while reading the latest research in neuroscience or quantum physics, all of which is a death blow to the Darwinian materialist worldview. It may happen in a moment, or over years, or even decades. It may feel emotional, or it may feel more intellectual. It may come through joy, a deep sense of wonder and awe at the ocean or the Swiss Alps or string theory or the human genome or the miracle of childbirth. Or it may come through pain, a deep sense of suffering, of your need for God that you can't fix yourself, that you are a mess and you need to be, in the language of Jesus, saved. But at some point, we begin the journey when we recognize God. We move on to stage two if and when we make two steps forward. One, we commit to follow Jesus and move from this kind of ambiguous higher power idea of a being out there to follow Jesus of Nazareth. And two, we join a community of other followers of Jesus or the church. We then enter stage two, the life of discipleship. The author is right. This stage is best characterized as a time of learning and belonging. In this stage, we learn the most about God as perceived by others that we respect and trust. So who we follow is really important at this point. We are apprentices. At this point, we're the learners, not the teachers. We're the novitiate, not the Abba or the Amma. Learning to practice the way of Jesus in a community from our leaders, hopefully ones that point us to Jesus. People at this stage, when they are on track for growth, just devour the Bible or podcasts or books or church gatherings here every time the door is open and time with community, time with a leader, a mentor, all of that. Spiritual disciplines, the whole thing. And we move on to stage three, if and when we take a few steps forward. One, we shift from that generalist approach to discipleship to an identity and calling-based approach, from this is how all people follow Jesus to this is how I follow Jesus inside that rubric as an introvert or a woman or as this or in this stage of life or with this Enneagram number or whatever it is. And two, we identify our gifts whether it's a spiritual gift or just a natural ability or whatever we're made to do or a leadership thing or a skill we have, and we begin to contribute to the community. And three, we take responsibility for other people, whether that's in an upfront leadership thing or just as a friend. You begin to take responsibility for other people and share that load of leadership in the community. At that point, we move on to stage three, the productive life. The author summarized stage three this way. The productive life is best described as the doing stage. It is the period of time when we most consciously find ourselves working for God. In fact, our faith is characterized as just that, working for God or being in God's service. We're busy at this stage, leading in our church or raising a family or working hard in our career or whatever it is. We're run by goals at this point. What's the next mountain to climb, the next hurdle to get over, the next spiritual discipline to figure out, the next Bible passage to master, the next book to read, the next project to tackle, the next goal to just step into? Our sense of growth is often based on how busy we are with church activity or family life or career advancement. And other than tiredness, which is a common problem at this stage, all the young parents in the room, you're not in the room, you're home sleeping, but you feel it, right? Um... Other than that, most of us really like this stage. We feel, if we're not too tired, we feel great energy. We feel optimism for the future. And most of us want to make our home here. Great, that was awesome, Jesus. Thank you for the journey done. Most of us don't move on to stage four of our own volition. Most of us are moved, often against our will, or at least we go kicking and screaming, by God or by, in the language of the theologian Jay-Z, the hard knocks of life. And we can fight this transition and plateau, right? We can even go backward or regress, or we can progress to stage four, the journey inward, which is exactly what it sounds like. The author is right. Stage four, the journey inward is aptly described by its title for it is a deep and very personal inward journey. It almost comes as an unsettling experience, yet results in healing for those who continue through it. Until now, our journey has had an external dimension to it. Our life of faith was more visible, more outwardly oriented, even though things were certainly happening inside us. But the focus fell more on the outside. At this stage, we face an abrupt change to almost the opposite mode. It's a mode of questioning Exploring, falling apart, doubting, dancing around the real issues, sinking in uncertainty, and indulging in a self-centeredness. We often look hopeless to those around us. Sign me up for stage four. That sounds amazing. Often in this stage, you know, our outer world is great. Not always. Sometimes it's falling apart, too. But often at an external metric, you know, you're a leader at this point in the church, or you're killing it in your job, or your family is growing, or you have your act together, or whatever. But our inner world at this point is a mess. We feel confusion, uncertainty, doubt, sadness, loss, grief, a lack of clarity, a lack of direction. We're dealing at this point with a wound from our father, or our mother, or our childhood, or we're healing from a hurt in the church or our family or whatever it is, or we're realizing that we've been living into a false script or a false self, but we're not sure yet what a true script and a true self would even look like, much less how to get there. So this is a time with a lot of introspection, A lot of soul work. For some people, it looks like therapy or spiritual direction. For other people, just a lot of prayer and silence and solitude. For other people, it's a sabbatical or some kind of a break or a healing process where they step down from leadership. Whatever it is, it's a mix of healing from the past, processing in the present, and receiving new dreams for the future. But somewhere in stage four, we face what the writers call the wall. What they mean by the wall is a pain that we can't get around. It could be the death of a loved one. Or it could be diagnosis of an illness or disease in your own body or somebody you're in relationship with. It could be divorce or some kind of a failure that there's just no way to sweep that one under the rug. It's with you now. It's a part of your story for better or for worse could be a hurt or a wounding from a church experience, from a family, from a relationship breakup, from a failure of a business venture, anything. But something comes into our life that we just can't erase. Like it's there. It's a a blot. It's a stain on our white canvas. We we can't erase it. we, We can't get around it. We can't manipulate it. We can't spin it with PR. We can't get around it. It's there to block our way forward. As the saying goes, the only way out is through. Do you know that saying? I keep saying that and nobody like is repeating after me. So either that means I'm far more wise or you're just calm today. I don't know. I'm guessing it's the latter. But I love that. The only way out is through. That's true of so much in life. People who have been through the loss of a loved one will always say that to you. You don't get around your grief work, you get through your grief work. You don't get over the death of a loved one or a child or a parent or you, you you don't ever get over it, you get through it and they are adamant on that one. You know, for many of us there's pain all through life. Some people, tragedy at a young age, right? But prior to this, prior to the wall, we can numb that pain with our cultural narcotic of choice Be that as something as inane as Netflix or serious as addiction or pornography or sex or career or another stamp on your passport or church activity or ministry or whatever it is, or or we can just rise above it, that kind of American self-help, like, you got the touch, you got the power. It's a great song, if you don't know that, from back in the day. Um, I don't know where that came from. I'm just really tired and a little bit delirious tonight, and I have 1980s, like, songs in my mind, but... Or, or we can come up with some kind of a strategy to suppress the pain. Or if nothing else, just distract ourselves with busyness. But at some point, we reach this. Some people are pretty young. Other people not till much later. At some point, that pain blocks your way forward. And again, there's just no way around. Now, the wall can come at the beginning, the middle, or the end of stage four. It can either cause the journey inward or come as the result of the journey inward. But at the wall, we either stop or we regress or we move through and are set free both spiritually and psychologically. And that's key. The authors offer this perspective, quote, we are ready to learn about freedom, the liberty of living without grasping. Gosh, I love that definition of freedom. Living without. That's not our city's definition of freedom at all. But living without grasping. In a more profound sense than ever before, we have to let God be God and let God direct our lives. At the same time that we surrender our wills to be healed spiritually, we simultaneously begin to be healed psychologically. The wall experience is the place where the two, psychology and spirituality, converge. Up to this point, one can be religious, spiritual, or fruitful and not be healed psychologically Or vice versa. We all know people like this. At least I do. I know some people that are well down the path spiritually. Not just like in the the ritual or the rhythm of our practice of spiritual disciplines. And I read through the Bible. And I pray. And I'm at church every week. But actually like spiritually as defined by their will is in alignment with the spirit of God. They live a holy life in mind and in body. They are one with Jesus and his vision of human flourishing. Yet there's a psychological immaturity. They're not self-aware. They're often not aware of the way that people around them experience them, the ways that they're actually living from a father wound or a mother wound or projecting onto others or live with this fear or insecurity or, or the way that they're run by ambition. They think they're run by a motivation to love and serve Jesus, but actually underneath it there's an ego, there's an ambition, or, or there's, a, there's a fear that they're just there's an undercurrent that they don't want to think about. I know lots of people that have reached a certain level, not full-on, but a certain level of spiritual maturity, but are psychologically really immature. And on the flip side, I know some people that are quite like there's a lot of sophistication at a psychological level. They're very self-aware. They've been in therapy. They know what's wrong with them. They know where it came from. They're doing a pretty good job of better navigating interpersonal relationships. There's kind of an acumen at emotional intelligence and a, a way of life. But yet spiritually... Their will has yet to come into alignment with the Spirit of God. There is some form of a cultural Christian on the right or on the left, far more on the left in our city, but it's a cultural kind of Christian thing, and they're there, and they follow Jesus in some way, but their will has yet to merge with the Spirit's will, to to reach a level of holiness, a purity of heart, without which no one will see the Lord, but if all you ever do is mature at the spiritual level or the psychological level, and maybe that bifurcation is not helpful, maybe that's just two ways of saying the same thing, but if that's all you do, you, you stall out at some point. You never, you never rise to what Jesus has for you. What happens in the wall is those two things come together and begin to merge into one for you to take the next step forward in your maturity. We move to stage five, when and if... We accept the reality of our life with joy. This is my body. This is my story. This is my wound or my failure. This is what I've done, what I've not done. What's been done to me, what's not been done to me. This is my marriage. This is my singleness. This is my, you fill in the blank. We accept the reality of our life with joy, which turns out to be one of the hardest things we ever have to do. Who would have thought reality would have been so tricky? I love M. Scott Peck's definition of mental health as dedication to reality at all costs. Most people in the Western world live in fantasy, not in reality not just around sex, around everything. This turns out to be one of the hardest things we will ever have to do and one of the most liberating, healing, and life-giving things we will ever do with Jesus out in front of us. We are then ready for stage five, the journey outward, The author summarized it this way. Once parts of the deep, excruciating inward journey, and it is, have been experienced, the natural outcome is to venture outside of one's self-centeredness and back into the active world with a new sense of fulfillment. This outward venture may or may not be different from our previous direction, but our focus is different. Our focus is outward, but from a new, grounded Center of ourselves. Once again, we have been changed. We have experienced new wholeness. We are aware of our faults and have a fresh desire to be in God's will rather than our own. We know we are surrendering to a much wiser, more vital spirit. We sense a looser grip on ourselves and willingness to be conduits for God's work in our lives and others' life. We endure suffering gracefully because our confidence is in God. Often people change career or a ministry role or step into a new season of family at this point, but frequently people just experience a change in motivation or inner disposition. They care less and less about what other people think, yet more and more about other people. They are moved less by ego or ambition and more and more by love and compassion they know by then and we can figure out this out earlier than that but they especially know by then from felt experience that accomplishment and accumulation of any kind will not satisfy it will not fulfill it will not put away the ache and so ironically they begin to enjoy career ministry family life accumulation accomplishment more than ever before because now all the pressure is off those things are just things they're just okay cool great live with or live without they are no longer gods they are gifts people at this stage are you notice they are much more calm there is a there's a centeredness they know who they are they know who they're not they're not trying to impress you look at how they're dressed they haven't changed in 10 15 years they're just they're at peace at this point they're full of joy and at this point growth mostly looks like resting and accepting that our wounds are a part of our story rather than working and the fighting that characterized the early stages, which is right and fitting for a time, but it will only get you so far. We'll talk about this next week. We spend the first half of our life trying to solve problems. That's great, until you realize that most problems can't be solved. And at some point, you have to shift from problem-solving to radical acceptance and joy. People who have come this far usually make the final transition to the life of love. I've obviously never been to this stage, so I can only read the maps left behind by people who have. Quote At this stage, we reflect God to others in the world more clearly and consistently than we ever thought possible. We let our lights shine in such a way that God is given the credit and the thanks. We are at peace with ourselves fully conscious of being the person God has created us to be. We have little ambition for being well-known, rich, successful, noteworthy, goal-oriented, or even spiritual. We're like vessels into which God pours his Spirit, constantly overflowing. We are Spirit-filled, but in a quiet, unassuming way. This last week, as I was working on this, I just had a few people, three people in particular, come to mind. All of them are in their 60s and 70s. All of them raise the horizon of possibility in my mind for what is possible if you apprentice under Jesus long enough. All of them have been following Jesus longer than I have been breathing. And all of them are just they're actually all quite active people. None of them have opted for retirement and live in Florida on a golf course. All of them actually do a lot, but there's not a busyness to them. They, they're never really stressed out. They're never, how are you doing? Oh, just so busy, you know? There's a calmness. There's a centeredness. They're, they're really not driven by ego. They really don't care what I think. They just are full of love and compassion, and they know what their work is to do In the world, think of older people, you know, who are at this stage, not just older people, but older people who were at this stage of maturity. They're so happy. They are the happiest people I know. They're the most content people I know. They are the most grateful people I know. They thank God for like little things that I ignore. Sometimes I remember I was eating lunch with this one person and she was just so excited about her salad. I thought, really? It's just like a bad salad from a lunch place. But but there was just this sense of wonder. They have come to what the French philosopher Paul Ricoeur called a second naivete, meaning they have come full circle through cynicism of our day and age, the maturity of cynicism, which is an oxymoron. They have come full circle And they become basically like grown-up children. Oh, look at that. Oh, look at that. Oh, a sunset. Oh, a salad. Oh, it's just like the littlest things just spark wonder and gratitude and joy and satiation. They are the best of childlike wonder and the wisdom of old age in the same place. But above all, more than any of that, they have become loved. They embody the compassion of Jesus to everyone they meet, friend, enemy, stranger alike. Notice that, as always, the end goal of the spiritual journey is to become love. At stage two, we're not really sure what the end goal is yet. We're still learning about it. At stage three, you know, we think it's something to do with the work that we do in the world, motivated by love for sure, but it's our ministry, it's our work, it's our thing, it's our accomplishment, it's our what we do in the world. At stage four, we think, no, it's none of that, it's my Enneagram number, it's my work that I'm doing with my therapist, it's my inner stuff, it's my father wound, it's healing, it's acceptance, it's all this stuff. And then as we move past and, not past, through that, it's a necessary step. As we move through that, we begin to realize, oh, where this whole thing has been heading all along is love and when we get that in our head tons of you are young you're in your 20s or you're in your teens you get that all after the end of the spiritual journey is love you think okay cool got it but at some point i don't know near midlife for me it was just a year or two ago that that begins to like seep into our heart we begin to ache for it if your experience is anything like mine You experience the love of the Father for you in such a deep way that you become acutely aware of the ways that you do not actually embody that love to others. Specifically, by that stage, you're usually in close relationship with people where it's much harder to love than with casual friendships. You normally have some failed relationships under your belt, and you're just normally aware, more aware, no offense than some of you that aren't there yet, but more aware of how messed up you are. Like, that's just there to encourage you. You're way more messed up than you think you are. Welcome to church. Um, (laughs) That is biblical, trust me. Um, But there's just this moment where it begins to seep into your heart and you just begin to ache, ache more than ever before to become love. Not love as defined by our city, not the flimsy like you tolerate, you let people do whatever they want with their bodies and you're nice and you tip. But like, which is fine, that's great. But love as defined by Jesus on the cross, the discipline and decision of the heart to put the good of another ahead of your own out of sheer delight and compassion. That begins to become your ache And then something happens, and I'm for sure not there yet, but down the line, if you stay with that ache, if you feed that ache day after day, and you starve every other ache, then that begins to seep from your heart into your body. Somehow, it begins to become who you are. You become love. That is the end of everything to live in the love of the Father for you and to embody that love and compassion to all. Friend, enemy, stranger, loved one to all. Now, a few reminders before we move on. I have more to say. Don't get your hopes up. Um, One, just a reminder that this is not as linear as it sounds, right? Life is not a nice, neat, tidy circle on a slide. It is definitely not a timeline, right? Um, Remember we said the most apt metaphor, word picture, or image is of a upward spiral. Like there are seasons where we feel like we're progressing in our maturity, seasons where we feel like we're regressing, or like we just wander in circles. But actually, if you pay attention over years, there is for most of us a slow, gradual arc as we circle around the themes of the way of Jesus and move upward in our maturity to love. Second, just a reminder that you can apply stage theory to your life as a whole or to one area of your life. So it's most helpful for me kind of for my life as a whole, but most of us mature in fits and starts, and we're far more mature in one area of our life than in another, right? And that's why the whole thing has to go together, and that's why we often feel stuck. It's because there's another area of our life where we have yet to surrender to Jesus and his invitation. So feel free. Some of you might feel like, man, I'm really in stage five. Like in this area of my life, but I'm in stage two, I'm literally just starting to learn about this age, of my life—that's great. And finally, just a reminder that the whole—if this is helpful, great. If not, don't worry about it. This is bio, more biographical than biblical. I mean, it's it's quasi-biblical, like you see it in the stories. But this isn't chapter and verse. It's not science. This is just we have two millennia of people who are farther down the road with Jesus, saying this is kind of a map for the journey. And if, I think we're really wise to listen and to pay attention in order to better navigate the journey that we go on with Jesus. Now, for those of you, but if if this paradigm isn't helpful, great, I have another one next week. It's my last one, I promise. Um, For those of you for whom it is helpful, let's talk for a few minutes about how we get stuck, transitions, our culture's conspiracy against the journey inward, and then to end a few more thoughts on the wall. First off, how we get stuck. We all get stuck on the spiritual journey. If you feel that way tonight, you don't need to put your hand up, but you're welcome to. This is a safe place for that. We all get stuck. I get stuck. Any of us do. Some of us even stall out or even regress. We go backward. What in the church tradition I grew up in was called backsliding, which is just a great metaphor on so many levels. The great tragedy, on a serious note, is that many people never get unstuck. If you pick up the book, and you're welcome to, though this teaching is essentially a book summary, the authors offer great advice on where most people get stuck in each stage and how to get unstuck. Here's a quick overview. People get stuck at stage one if they don't join a community and never move from ignorance to learning, never transition from a higher power to follow Jesus. People get stuck at stage two in black or white thinking, kind of as they are learning about religion or ethics or whatever it is, get stuck in kind of a a rigid, self-righteous us-versus-them mentality. We're the good guys. They're the bad guys. We're the right religion or denomination or theology or whatever church, and they are not, and by the way, this happens on the right and the left, full-on a myth that this is a problem on the right with fundamentalism or conservative evangelicalism. This is a problem on both sides. I see people who are intolerant, angry, closed-minded, anti-intellectuals on the left just as much as I see on the right. This isn't about a political side or a social side. This is about how wounded and messed up and in need of healing and maturity we all are, no matter where you fall on the political spectrum. There are two types of people who get stuck in a permanent limbo at stage two. The author is called the switchers and the searchers. By the switchers, they mean people. It's a little bit cheesy, but it was written in the 90s, so show them grace. Um, are people who switch from community to community to community, from leader to leader to leader, from whatever to whatever to whatever. They come into a community or under a new leader, and at first they think, they are amazing, everything is amazing. And then a few months later, everything's terrible right? I know, I, I just have come, I say this with a lot of grace, but I've, I've been at this job long enough to realize that when people come up to me and they're often gushing, there's a level of gushing that is, it really, really feels nice, thank you, um, but I mean like the unhealthy level of gushing, where they're like, you're the best thing ever, and I'm actually not, and actually you clearly aren't paying close attention, and, um, and this is the best churches ever, and this is the best thing ever, and I just moved to Portland, and it's amazing, and it's July, of course, but... Um, <laughs> Whatever <laughs> and they have free rent for the first year or something, whatever it is. And I just I have I have learned the hard way just to smile and show grace, but to my guess is normally that they won't even be here in a few months. Um, because there's an idealism with that. no community can live up to that. No leader can live up to that. No tradition can live up to that. That's a fantasy. That's somebody who has yet to accept reality and yet to to realize that community is hard and no church has it all together. And some might have less problems than others, but that's a really negative way to think about it. Um, We all have our stuff, and we all hurt each other and, and all of that. But people, I just know people, they switch from community to community, community leader to leader to leader. And unless if they land at some point, they never mature. The other group is the searchers, and what the authors mean by that are people who normally had a bad experience in childhood or just early on in the life of discipleship, could be in your 20s, 30s, 40s, and have not been through what the authors call the healing of religious wounds, which they argue everybody has to go with. I actually really like that. I'm not a fan of the like, you know, my mommy and daddy hurt me in the church and everything that came before me was awesome, but I'm enlightened because I listen to this podcast. That's not really my gig as much. But I get like there is a need of the healing of religious wounds. I come from a great family and I'm grateful for the church tradition I grew up in, though I'm not really in that anymore. But even I had to go through a healing of religious wounds. Like there was, a, in particular, not so much. There wasn't scandal. I was never. There was no spiritual abuse of me by the grace of God. And I hear those horror stories. I just had to go through a little bit of healing over some of the anti-intellectualism, some of the bad theology, some of the way that conservative politics just corrupted the. Name. And the way of Jesus. I had to go through some of that. And sometimes you'll hear stuff leak out and you'll be like, bro, you're not all the way healed. When you talk about the rapture, you're definitely not all the way there yet. You have some stuff you need to work out with your therapist. Okay? I just have yet to have the rapture talk. All right? But we'll get there in time. My point is all of us, even if, like me, you had a, for the most part, healthy kind of background, we have to go through this, and so often people who don't go through this, or in a city like ours that's really secular and really post-Christian, um, for people like in a city like ours, or just people that come up through a university system where there's a high value for post-modernity or deconstructionism or Foucault or whoever your hero of choice is, often go searching, whether it's into other faiths or other spiritual traditions or other Christian traditions or other theological paradigms that are hetero-orthodox or, or full-on heretical, often often kind of veer into a deconstruction, and deconstruction, there's actually a place for it if it's a phase, and if it's done in a community with followers of Jesus, with some kind of trust that Jesus is Lord. But once you take away Jesus as Lord and take away the community of followers of Jesus, and it's just you and the internet and two of your pissed friends, that's rarely a healthy way to move. Did I just say that? That's okay. You're you're fine with that. Um, that's, that's rarely a healthy experience, and most of the time it's not a stage that is then followed by reconstruction, where you recommit to a, a healthier, a deeper, more intelligent, more actually a deeper level of conviction, but with a lot less self-righteousness and fundamentalist thinking and dogmatism, with an open, where you're no longer run by fear, but, but you are run by conviction and you follow Jesus forward. Um, but when that becomes not a phase, but an end, at that point, Peter just, people just kind of peter off? And how many of us have friends that used to come here, used to worship with us after 7 p.m. or whatever, and and now are just, I don't know, wherever they're at with Jesus, whoever that is to them, whatever they're doing or not doing. And and, and in my experience, most of those people, often good people, they just never really progress at that point on the spiritual journey. They might have a a level of intellectual or um, even psychological sophistication. They might be really good people but they never really mature. They never step into the journey outward to step into what Jesus is doing in the world and they never become, I just don't know people like that that are 70, 80, living in that deconstructionist space that have become love. I know a lot of people that got divorced. Tons of people. I know a lot of people that are just angry. I know a lot of people that are self-righteous and arrogant. I don't know a lot of people that have been through that and become, I don't know any, and have become love. I just think we stall out. So that was a a long tangent. I'm sorry. And I said the word pissed. Moving on. Um, People get stuck in stage three when they are run by ambition rather than by obedience. When they put their desires in the place of God and call that God's will. And they live as performance, even if it's performance in the kingdom of God. And they buy into the lie that they are loved for what they do, not for who they are. And they refuse to redefine success by the metrics of Jesus and his way rather than the metrics of America. And as a result, they compromise and stall out. People get stuck in stage four. Um, A lot of people get stuck there by navel-gazing unhealthy introspection to a degree that isn't good or for a time period that isn't good or they just never move through deconstruction and doubt to reconstruction and trust on the other end. And thankfully, the authors argue that people who make it to stage five don't really get stuck. So if you're at that stage, just stay alive. Just eat healthy and exercise. Don't die. And you'll get there in time. All right. All that to say, a great question to ask yourself is where am I stuck? We're all stuck, right, in some areas. I know that I am in some. And what would it look like to get unstuck? Now, you might not even think about that for days or weeks. You might need to process that with a friend or mentor or parent or whatever. But that is a great question to give some mental time to. Secondly, a short word on transitions. Um, If you don't resonate with one stage or you just feel really confused, it could be that I'm bad at my job. That's a very valid option. Um, But it also could be that you're in a transition from one stage to the next or one season of life to the next. Transitions, as we all know, feel disorienting. The stability of your previous stage is stripped away, that sense of, like, I'm here, and I'm settled, and I know who I am, and I know what I'm doing. Instead, we feel like we're in limbo, like we're waiting, like something un... You're like, this is basically called college, okay? It's a whole... Yes, it's true. But we feel like something undefined lies ahead, but we're not sure what. It's a mixture of confusion and doubt and loneliness and spirit-inspired dreams for the future... Um, But in my experience, I normally just feel confused. Our friend Pete Scazzaro calls this season or this kind of experience the confusing in-between. I love that language. If you're in that, next time somebody says, hey, how are you? Just say, I'm in the confusing (laughs) in-between. That's great. That's like now insider language at Bridgetown Church. But transitions are liminal space, if you're familiar with that paradigm, where we actually have some of the most potential to grow into the next, but to do that, listen carefully, if you're in a transition, we have to grow in trust. If you're in a transition, the invitation of Jesus, or one of many, is to a deeper level of trust, a deeper level of confidence that, as we said, somebody else is in charge of our life. Next, um, a short word on our culture's conspiracy against the journey inward. I hate to say this, but there is no guarantee that any of us move forward, that we will move forward on the spiritual journey. Some people never go on the spiritual journey at all. Many people go on it for a while and then get off. But most people simply get stuck and stall out along the way. We all could run through our mental Rolodex and think of people who are 60, 70, 80, 90, but who are nowhere close to a life of love, are actually quite narcissistic and selfish and self-absorbed, who are unhappy, grouchy, discontent, and ungrateful. The sad truth is that none of us mature without aging, but many of us age without maturing. <laughs> That's just here to perk up your night for you. Just God bless you with that. Um, But, you know, I would argue that in America, most people never move beyond stage three. And people often blame the church for that. And I'm sure some of that's legitimate. But, you know, I think we just live in a shallow, superficial culture. And it's really hard to not let it form us into shallow, superficial people. Am I right? Jan Walgrave famously said that American culture is a, quote, virtual conspiracy against the interior life. The constant barrage of text messages and social media and alerts on our phones and the busyness and the noise of urban life, it's just a nonstop distraction. I read one commentator a few days ago who said we're all developing permanent ADD. We are attentive to so many things that ultimately we aren't attentive to anything, especially what is most deep inside of us. Have a look at this from Ronald Rolheiser, who's one of my favorites. Today, a number of historical circumstances are blindly flowing together and accidentally conspiring to produce a climate within which it is difficult not just to think about God or to pray, but simply to have any interior depth whatsoever. We are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. It is not that we have anything against God, depth, or spirit. We would like these. It's just that we are habitually too preoccupied to have any of these show up on our radar screens. I love this. We are more busy than bad, more distracted than non-spiritual, and more interested in the movie theater, the sports stadium, and the shopping mall, and the fantasy life they produce in us than we are in church. Pathological busyness. Go Blazers, by the way. Pathological busyness, distraction, and restlessness are major blocks today within our spiritual lives. But you know, honestly, I think it's a little bit deeper than just a culture of distraction. It is that, not less, but I think it's a bit more. I think it's what our friend Mark Sayers calls digital capitalism. Now, I'm not an anti-capitalist, which makes some of you angry and some of you happy. I pick Pick your thing. But the reality is that many entities have a vested interest in keeping us immature. Our culture, and we'll talk more about this next week, I'm teaching on first and second half of life, but our culture is a first half of life culture. It's a youthist culture. What do we do with people that are dying? We put them away in a home behind closed doors in a part of the city that none of us want to go to, and we visit them when, if and when we want, Right? What do we do when our body starts to break down? If we have the money, we augment it, we diet, we perk it up, we do whatever we have to do to look younger than we really are. What do we do when the marriage is not working? We just start over and rewind, whatever. It's just a youthist culture. Um, In the critical journeys paradigm, it's a stages one through three culture. Get your life together together. Learn how to do it all, and then go do something productive in our society. Beyond that, our culture has little to offer us in way of vision of a deeper life. In fact, the, the tragedy is it often mitigates against said life, not just through distraction. There's a whole like riff on technology there and how it's out to monetize your attention and attention and spirituality. That, just insert that. But also because people, just at an economic level, people in later stages care less and less about material things. They are free, in Jesus' language, to enjoy a nice meal or a beautiful home or a vacation wherever, or to thank God for a career win, that's great, but they are far more detached than most of us are in our younger years. They care little to nothing for our culture's definition of success. They're smarter. They're not going to sacrifice their soul or their marriage or their child on the altar of corporate advancement or whatever it is. Um, And they are far less dependent on things, money, a new toy, a nicer car, to live a happy life. All of this is really bad for business. So forgive the cynicism here. But there's truth in it. My point is just that all sorts of things in our culture conspire to keep people from the journey inward to depth and maturity. The question to ask is, are we willing to go on the journey inward when the time comes? Some of you, it's not even the time yet, but when the time comes, are you ready? And before you just jump out and say, yes, I am, I follow Jesus, just remember, it's one thing to say, I follow Jesus and love the Bible and even love to pray and even love to spirituality. It's another thing to actually deal with your stuff. It's another thing to actually go back and get healing from the past. It's another thing to actually have the courage to ask somebody who's close to you and you know will tell you the truth, how do you experience me in relationship? In what ways do I not model love? Where do you see is my next step for growth into the image of Jesus? How have I hurt you? Where do I blame shift What do I need to take responsibility for in our relationship? That's a whole other thing. Most of us are like, no, I'm good. I'll just come to church. Thank you very much. Right? It's a whole other thing. And so when that time comes, will you say yes to Jesus' invitation to the journey inward? Or will you just log on? Log on. None of us do that anymore. Sorry, I'm old. Will you just go online and distract yourself? Or just keep chasing the carrot on the stick of career success or just listen to more Bible Project podcasts, which are wonderful, by the way, but, or whatever it is. I get it. We all want to avoid pain, not just you type sevens on the Enneagram, right? All of us, you especially, but all of us. And the journey inward is painful at times, but Jesus is always calling people out of the shallows and into the deep. Finally, just, just give me another minute or two, a few closing thoughts on the wall. We all come to the wall, most of us, multiple times over the course of our life. Remember, this is not linear. You might hit the wall once, you might hit it 10 times. For those of you at the wall right now, first off, I'm sorry. Can we disagree that it sucks now that we're using inappropriate language at church anyway? <laughs> um, it's, it's really hard. I'm there right now. I, in my, when I plot myself on this paradigm, I think I began the journey inward about five or six years ago at a crisis point in my life, burnout and all sorts of stuff. And uh, man, the last year or two, I have just been at the wall. It's a number of things, spiritually. I'm in a dark night of the soul. I'll explain what I mean by that in a few weeks. But man, it's very hard. Um. In my family, some of you know my wife struggled with chronic illness, and she's such a trooper, but just another diagnosis a few days ago that is really not good. And we're hopeful and all of that, but man, when you live with that, it is so hard. There's just a few things right now in my life, and there is no way around them. They are not what I want at all. They are not where I want to go. I don't want to go there. I'm okay. I'm okay with some immaturity. I'm fine not to go into that. But man, the invitation of Jesus at an external level, my life is so awesome right now. If you follow me on Instagram, dude, just feel really insecure. My life (laughs) is amazing. It is so amazing. Uh, we, We just moved. We live in this beautiful new home. I love it. I love our city. Six months of the year, um, I love our community all year long. I've been in my Bridgetown community now for 10 years, the depth of relationship we have together now. I have deep, close friendships with people now, some of my best friends all over the world. I feel like I'm a part of this global thing that God is doing in the church. It's just an honor to get to do what I do week in and week out. At an external level, my life has never been better. At an internal level... I just don't post it on Instagram. How do you post pain? I don't know what that would look like. But, um, but man, this is one of the most difficult seasons I've ever been in my life. And if you're out the wall, if you are, whether yours is far more serious than mine or whatever, man, it feels terrible. And it feels in the moment like you're regressing, not progressing. Like I feel both more aware of the depth of God's love and compassion over my life in my brokenness now than I ever have in all of my life, and yet at the same time, I am more acute in my awareness of my failure to embody that love to the people closest to me, especially to my wife and my three children. I feel more pain and sadness and failure to love now than I ever have have in my whole life but these seasons when you're at the wall it doesn't feel like you're growing but you are sometimes i think jesus and his grace hides that from us because the whole point is to shift where it's not about you anymore it's about love but what happens is these seasons often have the deepest potential to foster our greatest growth. Not our fastest growth. That happens in stage two. When we first come to Jesus, leaps and bounds. We just jump forward in maturity. But our deepest growth, if you were here a few weeks ago, that four layers of sin, right? Level, level three, the con- unconscious sins. And level four, the trust structures, that stuff is really deep. It's literally been wired into the neuroplasticity of your brain. It's in your body. It's in your genes at this point. The deep stuff where we're most in bondage and most need to be set free by the power of Jesus' spirit and in truth. This is the stuff that God is after. But if you say yes to God's invitations in your pain, if we stick with it, if we don't run from our pain, if we don't go backward, but if we move through it, then we will come out the other side radically healed at a whole new level of, you know what? It's not okay, but I'm okay. I love that a whole new level of transformation, the, the well-used imagery of the New Testament of the refiner's fire. I love that. It's cliche, but I love the image where you're burned down to the best part of you, the precious metal, the part of you that will last forever. People, I watch it. People come out of the wall, not perfect by any means. That's not on the table. Maturity, yes. Perfection, sorry. Wrong religion. But, um, but come out of the wall at peace with what is, with reality, what my mentor calls radical acceptance, full of joy at the miracle and gift of life, and above all, full of love and compassion for themselves and for others. I was chatting to an older person that I trust a few days ago, and they said, you know, the wall, we were chatting about this, and they said the wall was the best thing that ever happened to me. It ended my journey into myself, stage four, and it stripped me of every identity I'd built up before that, stage one and two and three, and it left me as nothing but the beloved. And then they said, it set me free. I love that. But it's still hard. If you're at the wall, get help. Come for prayer tonight. Let us stand with you Usually, in the early stages, we really need a leader to follow and a community to belong to, and we still need that as we mature. It's, a, it's, a, it's faulty thinking, it's a myth that you don't need that you age out of that. You never mature past the basics, right? I'm sure Steph Curry or whoever is still like doing dribbling like things in the morning, or I don't know what they do basketball things, whatever. I'm sure he goes to practice. something. I read books. Um, <laughs> we never mature. Past that, but as we age, as we mature, what we need more and more it's not a podcast or a thing or a program, but is a spiritual director or a pastor who's been there ahead of us, or just a parent, or just a few soul friends. Not to fix our problems—that's not the goal anymore. That's earliest. stuff. Now the goal is to live with them with joy, and to sit in the unanswered questions in trust. And if you're at the wall, please just as we end, just stick with it. Don't give up. Don't get off the journey. Don't let doubt be the end of your story. Don't let deconstruction have the last word. There's, there's no life there. Don't get off. Don't go backward. Don't stall out. Don't settle in complacency or fear or pain, but just say yes to what Jesus has for you one day at a time. For the week ahead, our practice is all up at practicingtheway.org backslash naming. It's a very easy little exercise. Janet Hagberg of The Critical Journey put together what she calls a spiritual life inventory. It's just a self-assessment of your stage based on The Critical Journey. It takes about 10 minutes to do. And there's a few great resources there, some questions to ask yourself, some prayer prompts. Just, it will take you 15 minutes and it's a great thing to dialogue with with somebody in your community or a close friend. It's all on the site. To end just end with a question. We'll have a moment of quiet. Where is Jesus leading you that you would rather not go? That sounds like a bummer of a question. It's actually not. Because again, on the other side of death is what? Resurrection. Yeah, life. On the other side of self-denial is the fulfillment and the satisfaction of life in the kingdom of love. So entrust in Jesus' wisdom, his care over your life, and his goodness. Just Sit for a moment. If you want to just close your eyes, you don't need to, but you're welcome to. If you want to just clear off your lap and take a few deep breaths and just breathe all the way out and distend your belly even as you inhale and just let not only your brain fill with oxygen, but let your mind fill with the voice of God. Just sit in that question with God for a moment, just alone together. Where is Jesus leading you? that you would rather not go. Don't force anything. Don't feel bad or unspiritual or unloved if nothing comes to mind. The point of this little exercise is just to show up. Like all of the practices in the way of Jesus, it's just to present ourselves before God. Sometimes God has something to say, but a very wise follower of Jesus once said, God's first language is silence. There's something deeper than a thought or a feeling. That is the presence of God, the ground of our being. Just welcome that. Welcome the love and compassion of God over you. Whatever that would look like for you, the key is just to surrender your will to alignment with that of Jesus. To say yes and trust that he is a good shepherd and he will lead you to life, whatever the journey. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Practicing the Way. We are a crowdfunded nonprofit that exists because of the generosity of listeners like you. To support our work, join The Circle, our community of monthly givers. To give or to learn more about running our resources in your church or small group, visit practicingtheway.org.